here's some tips for maintaining your Trex deck. Um, occasionally wash it with some soapy water or a pressure cleaner. Trex composite decking is low maintenance and won't fade, splinter or warp. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. in test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia have got it! Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by a former tennis pro and one of Australia's most experienced sports administrators. Paul McNamee won two singles titles, 23 doubles titles on the court before shaping the game in this country off it. Order of Australia medalist, King of Moomba, Cox Plate winning owner, author, business owner. There's not much this man hasn't done. Paul, it's only a 45-minute show. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. I hope I won't bore you. <laughs> oh, no chance of that. You're 66 years young. I've got to say, though, you have crammed a lot into those 66 years, Paul. Yeah, and there's more to come. Don't worry. I mean, today, I look I look at today more than yesterday or even tomorrow. It's, it's uh, happy to be speaking to you. Um, and, you know, let's try and make this make this interesting for the, for the listeners. But, uh, you know, life is, is a great, opportunity and um, I'm happy just to be part of it. Oh, that's great. What a great attitude to have looking forward and looking uh, day to day. Speaking of day to day, it sounds like you're in a good place, obviously. Someone who unfortunately isn't in a great place at the moment, Paul, and I'm sure you've watched this with as much interest as the rest of us and maybe even sadness is, of course, the situation involving Naomi Osaka, who this week pulled out of the French Open after the circus-like response that came from her refusal to speak to the media. What have you made it all uh, over there? Look, it is sad. I mean, we obviously our first thoughts are to Naomi to be able to get on top of you know the the bouts of depression that she's dealing with, and it must be hard when you're the highest paid female athlete in history, and yet that doesn't mean you're immune from uh, you know mental problems. So our thoughts go go out to her. I mean, she admitted she probably could have handled it a little better, and I think the Grand Slam board could have handled it a little bit better as well. And I think we, you know, it's a relatively new on the table mm. um, dealing with mental illnesses of athletes, but it's absolutely real. It's just that you can't see it like an injury. You see someone, you know, sprain their ankle or do their knee, but you don't see the mental anguish that athletes are going through. So I think it's put a spotlight on that and, and, and for the better. And I think AFL and many other codes are, are dealing with it and it needed the spotlight. And I think that's, that's the positive to come out of it. Yeah. You mentioned both sides could have handled it better. And certainly um, the statement from the presidents of the four grand slam tennis tournaments did raise some eyebrows. I mean, you were obviously involved at the highest level at the Australian open for what a dozen years. If you were over there in Paris, how do you think you would have handled this hot potato? Well, I think, it was there in a difficult position because after Monica, uh, sorry, I've just been watching the interview on Monica Salas, which is incredible because I mean, no one played uh, 
tennis, I'd female women's tennis better, I think, than Monica Sellers. Mm. But that's another another point. But um, you know, when Naomi came out and said that I'm not going to do any media conferences, when she announced that before the tournament, and then she plays a match, does an on-court interview, and then doesn't want to go to the press. Um, the the rolling the rolling the tournament director you know and the president of the French Federation the new president Jules Moraton they tried to reach out and speak to Naomi Osaka and her manager and were not able to do so I mean that that was the hard part and I think that Naomi perhaps would regret is that they did make an effort to to reach her and to discuss what she was going through in vain and so of course then they threw the book at her with with the fine I mean fifteen thousand US dollars is a lot of money for mm. missing a media conference. It's, it seems over the top, of course, but I think it, 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 they were in a difficult position and they had to find her when she said she's not going to do a media conference, wouldn't speak to them, and then and then didn't do it. So I think they, were, they had no no choice but to find her. Maybe their language could have been better, but they were trying to figure out what's going on here. I mean, the, even people close to Naomi did not know. You know, people within the WTA and then Chris Evan and Martin Navarrelov, they were not aware of these problems she was going through. So... I think they were in a very, very tough position. And so I think the fine was understandable. And, of course, when Naomi then admitted what she's going through, of course, you know, a lot of people did a, did a 180 degree very quickly yeah. because they, oh my, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I, me- I mentioned your author status, Paul. You've got, obviously, Game Changer, My Tennis Life. But you've just released a new book. It's on the shelves at the moment. Tell us what it's called and what it's all about. It's called Welcome to the Dance because... It's the joy of being able to make a tennis ball dance, and, and especially on a clay court where you you learn you know, the, the nuances of the game, and you learn to if, if you care about it, you learn to unlock the mysteries of the game. And and so my premise is that to, to truly master tennis, you need to master clay. And 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 I feel sadness for people that don't go on that journey, the one that I went on, and it's a joyous journey. And uh, that that's the the end result is you know being able to make a tennis ball dance and and the fulfilment that you get out of that. Yeah, yeah. Your passion for clay's well known, Paul. It does chart your experiences on the surface. But the best part of it, I think, is your documentation of the win over Mac John McEnroe center court at the French Open. I, I think you won two hundred and forty six matches across your singles career. But is it? Am I right in saying you regard this as the absolute pick of them? Well, not so much because you're winning a third round match at a Grand Slam. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, I made a semi of the Australian Open, yep. which is arguably a better result. But no, the point for me was, was on Court Chatrier, um, I had played my first ever match on play on that court when I played a guy over 40 years of age from South America. And I'm thinking I'm the number one junior in Australia, one of the best juniors in the world. What is this guy even Still, why is he still playing? Okay, it's not Roger, Roger Federer is still playing at forty. Um, this is the guy over forty from South America, and so I didn't think it was a, a difficult. Ma- I mean, so what? It's my first match on clay. I mean, it's the same shape and size, right? Of any other tennis court, it's a rectangle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Seventy-eight feet by twenty-seven feet. So, but you know, he just took me to pieces, and I thought, well, if, if if he does show me a bit of stuff I haven't seen before, like angles and drop shots, I'll just stay in a rally with the guy because I'm younger, fitter, stronger. But of course, he knew that he's a step ahead. And this is the key about Clay. You know, if you know your stuff, you're always a step ahead and you know how to dismantle somebody. So he could just stand there and dominate the chessboard. So I was the one doing all the running, which is the, the wrong thing to happen when I'm younger and fitter and stronger. So 
I quickly discovered that I knew so little about this surface and that everyone who had said, oh, it's different, Paul, it's different. I'm going, yeah, okay, sure, it's different. What, what's different? It's different. Okay, <laughs> it is different. And so I, you know, I spent, went on that journey. And so the next time I played on Court Chatrier was a third round of the French Open against John McEnroe, who's number two in the world. And, you know, he's, he's kind of a genius as a player. He was a Federer of my generation. And it was not that I won, particularly won the match. It was the way in which I did it that I was able to, you know, dismantle the number two in the world um, because he was a little bit more uncomfortable on play than what I was. And, and, I knew my stuff and I had the answers. And so in terms of personal fulfillment, I never had a more fulfilling moment personally in my, in my career and than when I won that match and was walking off the court knowing that I knew my stuff and that every other player would know that I knew my stuff. So that was my, that was my rite of passage that happened at that moment as a player. And I knew all the Europeans who who kind of a, a little bit the custodian of, of, of clay court tennis, they, I knew I would have that respect forever, which I still have there. So that's why that was uh, so important for me. And you had to hold your nerve though too, didn't you, Paul? Because four tie breaks went for four hours sure. and 18 minutes as well. Yeah. And of course, you know, John had game plan ABC. He could do anything. Mm. You know, he could serve volley if he wanted to. He could chip and charge if he wanted to. He could play in the court because he's got the hands of Federer, the way Federer now plays more inside the court, especially with the latest rackets, and especially on hard court. So he had all the different things that he could bring, and he loved to psych, psych out his opponent as well. He loved to disrupt the match um, to get you thinking about other things besides the present. But but I paid my dues, you know, and, and I knew what I was doing and I knew my game had a chance of matching up against him on clay, which it did not on grass or hard, even though we played some... I won sets off him on those other surfaces, but I didn't beat him. But on clay, that was my turf. And in a way, you're defending the honour of clay, um, which is what Rapid does, which is why that final last year against, against Novak Djokovic, he was defending the honour of clay. I mean, he is a better clay court player and he can accept losing to... Djokovic on hard court or grass, and, and you know, and he, he never loses to him now on hard court, by the way. But he cannot accept dishonouring Clay by losing to him in a major final on clay. So that's how I felt, and uh, and I felt like that fr- from then on. But I had to, I had to have that rite of passage, and I I achieved that that day. That's fascinating. And do you stay in touch as much as one can now, for obvious reasons, with with, with John McEnroe, Paul? Have you got a relationship that's ongoing? Uh, absolutely. Well, he wrote the forward to my book, Game Fantastic. Changer. Not, the, not, not welcome to the dance. I didn't get anyone to write a forward to right. that. I just old. I, look, I wrote that thing on my phone, you know, so, you know, during COVID. So that's how I did it. I, I didn't even have a laptop to do the book. So, Is that a torturous task or what? What's that? That would have been a torturous task. The thumbs would no, have been. It was okay. no, no, it was okay. It was, you can be pretty quick on the phone. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so. Johnny Mack, I have enormous respect for, and he, he, the reason I'm close to John is because of that match, because he, he came up to me the next week and said, how did you play like that against me? I mean, why does everybody bring their A game when they play me? That's not fair. You know, there's no way, right? So, but he respected me because I've been him fair and square. It wasn't a lucky win. I, 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 I put him through torture that day, trust me. 
I love it. You, I, love it. I love it. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, next, we'll revisit the rest of Paul's decorated tennis career and another close friend who played such a big part in it. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with former tennis star and sporting identity, Paul McNamee. Paul, we left the conversation with John McEnroe, of course, but you had another great friend on tour, and that was the late Peter McNamara, a doubles partner with whom... You had so much success with. Uh, sadly, he died of prostate cancer in July yeah. 2019. Yeah, sadly, very sad. Uh, Maka loved life and was, uh, you know, he was talking about living in the present. Maka, and, you know, he just loved the tour. He loved the sport. And we went back to junior days when he was, you know, we were 13, 13 years of age playing juniors, the same age group. And he was kind of the the joke the joker the, the kind of the com the comical act i mean no one took his tennis seriously and and then he he beat me in the final of juniors in western australia and then everyone wait wait a second, maybe the guy can play a little bit you know because he, he just didn't seem like he was serious about it um but he had this amazing backhand um that he could did slide so well and and, and pass you with top spin you know pass you i mean he had a beautiful beautiful looking game and so we we kind of went out, did our own thing a bit, and then we thought we should try and play some doubles together when we were about 21, 22. And, um, you know, we just felt like our games would match up that way because, you know, I, I probably had a better forehand, he had a better backhand. I served a bit better, he volleyed a bit better, and, you know, he became a top 10 player, of course. But the key to doubles is, is finding someone that has, to be honest, the opposite strength in their game and the opposite personality in a way because you need to complement each other so someone constantly needs to take the lead role someone needs to feel the pressure at the start of the match and someone needs to be able to handle it at the end of the match so we kind of complemented each other so well and just from the very first match we you know we were you know a perfect partnership in a way and and um you know we would we were different guys absolutely on and off the court but we we just went on this run and, you know, in, in the limited time Peter had as a player because we only played three years together. And in that time, we won all those Grand Slams and yeah. tournaments in just three years because Peter did his knee, you know, in in, uh, in Rotterdam in 83 after, you know, we only started playing together in in 79. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's maximum four years we had together. And we did a lot. Of, people think we played for 20 years. We didn't. <laughs> Was yeah. only was only three three to four years maximum until Macca did his knee, and that effectively was the end of his career. Yeah, you won three, your four, obviously doubles, uh, Grand Slam titles with him by your side. It was seventy nine, as you said, the Australian Open, and then eighty eighty two at Wimbledon. And you were known as the Supermax, of course, Paul. And I mean, sport is a is a business, and the athletes these days are often business like. But how much of it was just fun with Pete? Well, it was because we. We never thought of ourselves as doubles players. I mean, now there's this whole thing where people think I was a doubles player. I never thought of myself <laughs> as a doubles player. I mean, in fact, I took it off my... I uh, saw I that. Off, I tacked it off my Twitter. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Why? Because, well, my brother, you know, he said, look, you know, people will think you couldn't play, you know, if, if, if you're a doubles player. So 
I kind of almost don't admit that I won the last Grand Slams and got to number one in the world. I've, I've said it now, but I mean, it's, it's big, oh, you were just a doubles player. <laughs> My nephew was one of the best juniors in Australia. And he actually said, oh, uncle, did, did you actually play singles? <laughs> I, said, I said, mate, when you get the semis of a Grand Slam, you know, you, you, you can ask me that question again, okay? <laughs> you know, in singles. So, fair enough, fair but, enough. So, you know, we were just, we were tennis players and we, we, we'd play, our, we'd base our schedule completely on singles, never around doubles. And then, but of course, we'd get together big tournaments like Monte, Monte Carlo, why not? You know, what a, wow, what a, what a tournament to play on the clay and, you know, the, the, the French Riviera, there's, you know, parties and things going on at that time of the year and, and just the whole ambience and vibe in, in, in Europe when the, when the sun's coming out in, in, mm. in, in the Mediterranean area. It, it's, these are just magical times. So Macro and I, we had some great, great times uh, together and we were, you know, probably closer than ever, you know, at the end, you know, when it was clear he, he didn't want to admit that, that the end of his life was coming, but mm. and he didn't want people to know, but it was obvious that this great physical specimen, good-looking guy was fading, fading away. It was... It was it was tough to see that. Yeah, it's tragic, wasn't it? Um, Paul, let's go back. You, you're born in Melbourne, November 12, 1954. Where was home as a kid? Uh, in Essendon, North Essendon, Strathmore. You know, I'd, you know, apparently, uh, you know, Buller Road was one of the busiest roads in Melbourne. I used to go up and down on a scooter when my parents weren't watching at, at three or four years of age, which is a shocker. But, you know, you couldn't do that now on a main street in Melbourne. <laughs> And, and neighbours would, would drag me in because I thought it was great going up and down the road on a scooter, you know. Um, you know. It reminds me of the first time I went to Beijing, you know, when, when Australians just weren't going there as athletes. It was a sort of a, a friendship mission. And, and, you know, there was six lanes of bike lanes on a road and one lane for the cars, you know. And then the next time I went to Beijing many, many years later, because there were six, six lanes of cars for cars and one lane for bikes. I mean, the whole the whole thing changed dramatically. So, yeah, and, and, you know, I used to just get the scooter up to the local tennis club, Du de Gallo, um, where my mum is still alive, uh, turning 100 this year, which wow. is amazing. And she she became, finally became president of the Du de Gallo Bowls Club at 90. I mean, we think she's the oldest first-time president <laughs> of anything. Wait, when's, her, when's her birthday, Paul? That's magnificent. Yeah, look, it's it's December the ninth. You know, look, that's why we, you know, we don't tempt fate because you know, yep. it, 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 you know, she's going well. But you know, like, like, talk about living in the present. Every day is a good day for my mum. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it, it, of course, you were raised in Essendon because you, you had an uncle who had a reasonable example to set, didn't he? Yeah. When it came to elite level sport, he won a few Brownlows. Yeah, he won three. Look. Um, Dick Reynolds was his name, and my mum was Mary Reynolds, Pixie, you know, they called her Pixie because she was so little when she was born, but Uncle Dick, yeah, he um, he, he heard he'd won the, the Brown on the radio. I mean, there wasn't this big thing with all the wags and everything, you know, the, 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 <laughs> you know, the crown, crown, whatever. I mean, he heard on the radio he'd won the Brown um, He They had some function, but he wasn't invited because no one thought he had any chance. It was only his second year. I mean, he'd grown up loving Carlton. The whole family were mad Carlton supporters. But when his dad, you know, took him to um, to Carlton at, at 16, they said, oh, you know, he looked, he was too scrawny, even though he could run even time as a sprinter. I mean, the guy was an amazing athlete. I'll come back when you grow up. So, he, you know, his father was so upset, you know, that someone said, oh, take him down to Essendon. Essendon put him in the, they put him in the first the next week. 
I mean, they, they were mad Carlton people. I mean, you should never have played for Essendon, right? So, um, and a lot of people don't know that story. And then and they gave him a, you know, when he was a bit older, they gave him a job, you know, because, you know, there was no money then. He made like six months a week or something. So they gave him, you know, he did the milk run around Essendon, you know, he, so he, he, on a horse, not a car. He'd be <laughs> driving the horse with the milk on the back. And oh. at Essendon Station, when they used to, at Mooney Ponds there, where they, the gate, the guy'd come out and open the gate. <laughs> you know, you remember those days. I remember them. You wouldn't, but I do. And he got the horse's head stuck through the fence, the paling of the fence of the gates at at Mooney Ponds there. And so they, they, he couldn't, he couldn't drive the horse anymore. You know, <laughs> I mean, this was what it was like back then. And uh, and his career was amazing. He played three hundred and twenty games. He played the most games at that time. And became a great coach as well. And you know, and oh, right. I, I remember seeing Dick, you know, kick the ball at, at training down at Essendon when he was coach. You know, so um, yeah. But he was such a gentleman. I'm seriously. I mean, he was. They called him King Richard. I mean, he was so regal. He was so gentlemanly. I mean, um, and you know, he, he he was he was he was just that sort of a guy. I mean, his brother Tom. People didn't realize he had a brother Tom, who who was, you know, who became full forward. Mm. full forward for Victoria and he kicked the most number of goals at the time seven goals that held the record for a long time in a grand final that was his his brother Tom and Tom was a larrikin and Tom ended up at the end of his career getting traded to St Kilda and and you know and apparently you know um, and your Dick was playing Essendon was playing against St Kilda so his, his younger brother Dick's playing for Essendon he loved his younger brother and and someone from uh, St Kilda flattened Dick you know in the game and Tom went up to his own teammate, St Kilda, and, and, and ironed him out. He said, don't you ever do that to my brother again. Right? And, and Dick was on the opposition team, right? Unreal. Don't you ever do that to my brother, right? And that was the last game Tom played for St Kilda. But, you know, blood's thicker than water. He was not going to let someone do that to his brother. That's just unreal, isn't it? And and coming back to you, you know, you're seeing all this as a, as a youngster, you know, hearing all the old stories. So I guess it's yeah. so powerful, the message, isn't it? When did your relationship with the game of tennis first start then, Paul? Can you recall a moment? Uh, it wasn't due to Gullah just mucking around. You know, there was, there was, there was you know, 30, 40 kids getting on three courts and just, Yep. It was free-balling tennis. There was no scoring. or You just went up there and hung out with the other kids and just balls would be shooting everywhere, you know. And that, that was my – and mum and dad – you know, dad – my dad was a really good athlete. He played VFA football, which at that time was as big as, you know, as, as the VFL, which became AFL. And he was just a great all-round athlete. Um, and, and so, he, you know, he – he let me play – they let me play any sport I wanted. But, you know, people say to children, oh, you know, which sport – should you get them into and you know, which sport should they choose? And, and I, I say this, um, you don't choose the sport, actually. The sport chooses you. It grabs you because that's the one you've got some talent in or you've got love. But, you know, tennis grabbed me. It wasn't because I particularly chose tennis. It was tennis chose me in a way because that was the one that, that was saying, hey, this is for you. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I love golf as well. They were my two favorite sports and still are, by the way. But I, I didn't like the fact that I couldn't run around in golf. <laughs> now I do, by the way. But at the, at the time, at the time, you know, I just loved the athleticism that tennis brought, and um, so it grabbed me. And and then I got into the junior thing, and I played a lot of tennis in the country. And my favourite memories as a child are really in in, in the Tarnagulla area, the Golden Triangle, where my dad 
found a nugget of gold, a 70-ounce nugget of gold in the Depression in, in 1931, which is amazing. So I've got that helped my childhood every weekend, every summer holidays, we'd go to, to that area up near Bendigo and we'd go to Bridgewater every, you know, every afternoon in summer and go swimming there in the river, which I did again recently, you know, which was amazing. And But they had these lawn courts at Bridgewater. They don't have them anymore. And you know, we would play on the grass, you know, in bare feet. I mean, we didn't have tennis shoes. We just playing bare feet. And I just, I just remembered, you know, never having tennis shoes and just playing in bare feet on the grass, which you could. And, you know, I, 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 I love that. So they're my memories of tennis. Ah, great memories. I'm interested to know, what was the 70 ounce nugget worth back in the day? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, I think it was like a few pounds. Uh, few, it was, you know, they picked up like over a couple of hundred pounds, which yeah. meant they could buy a, property they could all buy musical instruments for the family and they formed an orchestra and they they made ends meet during the depression by being the dance group that went around all the country towns on friday saturday night so that's how they that's how the family then learned their living you know my grandfather my dad's father was a blacksmith you know you know shoeing and dad had to leave school at 12 to shoe the horses and that and he he, he was so sad when he left school and a difficult moment for my father was when i you know quit uni in first year. Well, I wanted to quit uni in, in first year. Um, I was doing science and um, at Melbourne and they, I wanted to go play. Macca and everybody was over, over in Europe and, and it was so hard for dad because um, because he'd had to give up his education. Here was his son throwing away a degree, you know, to try and play tennis. So mum and dad made a deal with me. They said they'd let me defer if... Um, if I tucked it out and, and, and started starting and, and finished my first year, don't quit in the middle of first year university. You, you go finish that time, you know? And so I, I, I tucked it out and, and did. And then I went to Europe, had that experience where I couldn't play it all on clay. So I went back and, and finished my science degree actually. And, 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 and was doing law as well. Um, when I then tried for the second time, but you know, dad, um, it was very tough for him for, you know, to work three jobs to see the kids, get an education and then you know me potentially be throwing it away so they they you know did the right they set the right boundaries for me at that time mm. you're with this is your sporting life brought to you by tobin brothers funeral celebrating lives you can visit them at tobinbrothers.com.au we'll be back with paul mcnamee right after this you're listening to this is your sporting life with sam edmund for tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with one of sports' great characters, Paul McNamee. Paul, uh, coming back to on the court, you, you were spoken of anyway as the only player to switch your grip as a professional. You obviously went from a single-handed backhand to a double in 1979. How did that come about? Yeah, that was mid-career, which uh, you're right. No one else in history has done that. I wouldn't recommend it. It's pretty tough. Um, it took me 10 hours a day <laughs> you know, for a while, four months. Uh, in Florida, you know, 90 degree heat and 90% humidity. It was pretty tough. Yeah, but I, that that was my weak. That was my big weakness was my backhand. And I wanted to do, you know, I, I, I went left field, you know. But mm. I, I talk about this in Welcome to the Dance is that the trap that, many players make and many coaches make is they want to work on their weakness all the time. And you, you know, you, you always find a coach, oh, I can help you with your serve. I'll help you with your backhand. If that's a problem, 
whereas I, I, I point out that in life, you should play to your strength. You know, you, you, you're doing, you're doing a in sport, not because you're better at politics, right? You know more about sport, right? So you play to your strengths and, mm. and be, you know, so don't just be good at your strengths, make them great, make them great. So for me, my forehand was my better shot growing up. Um, but when I saw Borg and Villas play the final of Nice, just ripping Western forehands like Nadal does now and higher than that and not missing, I thought, I've, I've got to, I want to play like that. So I, I first changed my forehand and I made that into a weapon. So, you know, the same as you're going for a job, play to your strengths, you know. So I made my forehand a weapon and that was the, trans, the major transformation in my game, which made me a top 100 player initially and, you know, never to play qualifying again at a grand mm. slam. Once I broke through with my forehand, I broke through. But getting stuck around 80 for a few years, I realised, well, you know, maybe I better, you know, I need to focus, I need, now's the time to do something about my back end. All the work I've done over the years hasn't worked. So um, I thought, well, I'll try and copy Bjorn on the back end as well. So I ended up copying Borg, same age as me, maybe even what, six months younger. Um, I copied his forehand and then I copied his backhand. And then that took, took, took a long while and um, I nearly wasn't able to pull it off, but I did. Three years later, of course, 82, you get your best Grand Slam result, that semi-final on the, on the grass courts of Kuyong, of course. But it could have been more, couldn't it, Paul? I know we could say that about every every um, person who bows out at the pointy end of a tournament. But you had a match point in that semi against yeah. the number one seed, the eventual winner, of course, the South African-born American Johan Creek. Yeah, and he was a top-ten player. I mean, it wasn't Australian Open that it is now, but he was a very, very good player. But, but I, beat, I beat a young Pat Cash in the quarters who was pretty handy on grass. Um Chris Lewis had made the you know made the women mm. final the, the next year. So I mean I had I, I, I was playing really well that tournament and I came from two sets of love down against Johan um, and you know I got I you know I I got to match point five you know five three in the fifth from two sets of love down and on his serve I had match point I had a I had a short ball and I could have come in and I didn't and you know as a coach you know, not ruining the fact that I didn't take that opportunity and, and, you know, when that short ball comes to to really rip it and go in and take your chance. I wasn't brave enough on that point. I think that's helped me as a coach, um, you know, and, you know, and I think I've helped Sue Wei, Shay, who I coach, still I mentor now, being brave and, you know, in, in, in the way she plays now. And um, so I didn't take that match point, unfortunately. I mean, um, I didn't, I didn't, go in to the net he ended up coming in and I ripped a pass it would have been a winner on my match point it hit the tape and and fine and fell back I mean if that goes over I'm in the final the Australian Open and uh you know that, that's life you know and, and I served the match the next game got broken say la vie and um the, you know Johan won it for the second second year in a row and that was the best I did I was never good enough to be in contention more times at Grand Slams I had big wins in Grand Slams but I didn't I didn't. Um, I wasn't really good enough all round to to be, uh, you know, vying again. So you know, that was that was my moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fame, yeah, yeah. But still, French Open fourth round, Wimbledon fourth round, U.S. Open uh, yeah, yeah, second yeah, round. Yeah, so yeah, you get to twenty four yeah. in the world. Ultimately, I mean, your prize money's nothing shabby. I mean, a shade over one point two million. But you must, you must, Paul, have shaken your head over the years post your career as the prize money really took off. Sure. Yeah, well, Mac and I won nine thousand each for winning Wimbledon, which which is decent at the time. Um, well, yeah, because I bought an apartment in London for thirty six thousand pounds, you know, mm. pounds. So 
not you know nine thousand dollars was was yeah. a deposit on a on a on a house. It's not that bad, but now it's something like you know four hundred thousand each to win or something. I don't know something like that. Yeah, well I do know because because I've helped Sue Way go to number one in the world in doubles. Yeah. So I, I kind of do know. I kind of do know what how much it is. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we we joke. She's going beautifully. Hey, we joked earlier about it being impossible to fit your life into into this show. Now I wanted to ask you about mid eighties, eighty five specifically. You underwent a serious kidney operation. There's a fair story around this to the point where I think at one point you're actually told to pack it in and retire, weren't you? Can you tell us about it? I think it flared up in a Davis Cup semi that year. Oh, well, I, you know, yeah, we... Yeah, I, I had it at the end of 85. In 85, I won the, actually got the semis, the double, the doubles with Heinz Buntat. It was a Macred got without with his knee. And then yeah. uh, Martina Navratilo over and I won Wimbledon, which is great because my mother and father were there and they kind of missed the years when Peter and I had won it. So that was nice. And it was great playing with Martina. She's still a really close, good friend, you know, and a, a person I really respect. She's, she's making the world a better place. with all the causes she takes on. Um, she, she, she's out there, as you would have noticed. So she's an amazing woman. Um, yeah, so we're in the semis, and I, I knew that kind of needed me in uh, against Sweden, in Sweden, because it's on clay, and, uh, you know, with Macken not there, I'm, I was the best clay court player we had at the time. And, uh, and you know, I really wanted to play the semi, but, you know, it, just, it was just, yeah, it's... The pain just got ridiculous when we were in uh, getting ready in Spain, so I had to come back at the operation, and then, um, and then you know, the, uh, Bob, the late Bob Brett, my God, you know, Bob Brett just passed away, who, who was who coached Macca and I for a while, and and Brady, um, I said oh, I'd like to come back after this kidney operation, and Brady said, well, you need to go to the gym, and I, I would never love the gym, you know, uh, too much, um, still don't, to be honest, I didn't mind going for. 10k warm down after a match but i you know written a couple of times rip a couple of tans no problem but i didn't really love going to the gym so um uh, brady said we have to go if you go to the gym for a month then i'll help you and that was just torture for me but i did that and um and in 86 i had i after that operation i had my best my best singles ranking i had you know top 10 wins in singles especially on clay um and we won the davis cup that year and i played mm. singles in every tie which is a the big thing to do in four ties you know to play singles in every tie and the winning davis cup team i didn't play doubles that year <laughs> fitzy and cashy were the doubles team and and cashy and i played singles so yeah look it was just one i just didn't want that to be the end of my career having you know having a kidney uh operation and and you know so then but once we won the davis cup and i had a good year then i started thinking about retirement and what's next in life um mm. and that's what happened yeah, and it was another international tournament that you shaped earlier in your early foray into sports admin, wasn't it? And that was the Hotman Cup that you played a, a big role in founding in, what was that, 1988, I think? Yeah, well, that's right. Well, the, the, I lost a cashy third round of the Australian Open on, on Rod Labour Arena. I mean, that was an enormous honour to play uh, on that court. Um, the first year was at Melbourne Park. So I kind of hung on. Uh, I didn't even play doubles at the Australian Open. <laughs> that, that, see, if I'm a doubles player, why didn't I play doubles <laughs> in my last tournament? I didn't even play doubles. I just played singles. Played cashy, third round, got beaten pretty badly. Um, doesn't matter. And, you know, I got to play in Rod Laver Arena, and I, I got to be the guy that named it Rod Laver Arena, actually. Yeah. It was my idea to name it that and um, and, and get, to get to tell Rod that, that, that it would be named after him. But... Um, the day after that, I mean, Pat Cash 
Charlie Fankin and myself had been talking about it. And, with, you know, it was Charlie's idea to do a mixed event that was like the Davis Cup and, Fed, and Federation Cup, it was called at the time, now the Billy Jean King Cup. And the Davis Cup still called that, but it doesn't resemble what the one that we played, okay? Um, we'll just go there. Um, and so the very next day, um, went to an office on St Kilda Road. Um, and, uh, you know, my lady would become my wife, um, you know, was, was helping us out, Leslie. And, and so she had to set up the office. So it was just, you know, that was amazing, um, amazing time. I, I went to work the day after I retired because we had this idea to have, have a tournament, no idea where it would be, you know, no idea, and end up in Perth. Um, it's not there now, obviously, and I think there's imminent news that it will be resurrected from the grave again by the ITF. Who Charlie and I gave it to the ITF. We didn't sell it. We gave it to them, and it was tragic that it was discontinued, but I believe there's news coming out very soon that the Hopman Cup will be announced to be played somewhere in Europe, and we'll see. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And this gets back to playing to your strengths, as you were saying too earlier. But you've been involved in the, obviously, post-career at the Australian Open. You've been tournament director in Turkey, Bulgaria. You work for Basketball Australia. and before, Yeah, yeah, golf. And before Orica Green Edge came uh, about, obviously, in the world of cycling, you were part of that push to field an Aussie team at the Tour de France as well. Um, And CEO at Melbourne Football Club. You you took the words right out of my mouth. So what was it it about sports admin that, that drew you in Paul? I, well, I love, I love sports admin, you know, and I've, I've been to, I've run 46 major events around the world now, which is not, not, not a few. And um, so the, I just love uh, the idea of uh, the atmosphere that you can create. I and mean, people say, as a tournament director, what do you do? I mean, I mean, yeah, you put out fires and you, you know, you have some responsibility mm. to see. I was certainly at the Australian Open. Uh, I was the CEO before Craig Trolley. There's, you know, there's a lot comes on your plate. But it, when I get asked, what, what do you actually do? And how did I see the role? And, and this is how I always answer it. My role was to create and to manage atmosphere because atmosphere is the tonic for success, but it's an intangible. So the innate school is, is how do you create atmosphere and how do you manage it? And for example, because it's a function of, of people and space. So, you know, if the second week there's less matches, you need to go to a smaller space to keep the atmosphere. And that's why um, even a Melbourne football club, I, I wanted them to have a secondary secondary place to play out of Casey Fields. And if I was, if I'd have stayed there longer, they would have played more pre-season games and they ultimately would have played an AFL game there where they would have owned that whole Southeastern corridor. And I, you know, it was very disappointing to see that they didn't really embrace Casey Fields. We're talking to Paul McNamee on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back with Paul to talk Moomba and his fight to save that Mercedes coupe right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Paul McNamee is our guest today. Paul, it's 1987 and you're the king of Moomba. Good one for the resume, I would have thought. Well, it's an honour to be the one person, you know, plucked out of the, I don't know how many, four million people in Melbourne to be 
honoured or Victoria honoured as the King of Moomo. It, it was a big honour, um, no no doubt about it. But you, you can't take it too seriously because if you think life's about awards and recognition, um, well, you, you hopefully realise at some point it's not about that, and and you know the journey's within, and, and how you how you how you can try and be the best you can be, and it, it's it's nice to be honoured, but I, I don't take it seriously, no. <laughs> yeah, that was that's fair enough. And but one thing you did have to take seriously, and you weren't on your own here. A bomb around this time, a bomb went off in the South yeah. Yarra apartment block that you were, you were living in. A, a bomb, really? Yeah, when I yeah, look, I, I recognised it immediately. It was when I went off above, and unfortunately, uh, you know, my neighbour was killed, and 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 his wife was, um, you know, had shocking injuries, and. Uh, and it was just horrendous. You know, I, I knew it was a bomb because <laughs> when I heard the noise and uh, through the curtain, there was just fire licking at the licking at the window. It was right above where I was sleeping. Luckily, the building was an old hospital, and it was so strong that the the roof didn't collapse. And yeah, so I just got got out of there, got on the got in the laneway. Um, you know, the you, you know what, what do you what do you do? Everyone's running, going crazy, and then. You know, I, because around that time, a lot of bombs were going off in Paris. So if you remember in that, in that period, yeah, there, was, there was a bad period of, uh, you know, things were happening, uh, terrorist things were happening in Europe. So I kind of realized there was that. And I, yeah. So I just, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you had to rescue something though from the downstairs garage uh, first though, didn't you? Uh, well, you know, I liked my car because, you know, I had a Merc, um, at the time and, um, I'd got it in Stuttgart, and it was, which actually the factory in Sindelfingen, and it was just an amazing experience collecting a Merc in at headquarters in Sindelfingen. They're so proud the way they do it, and they were sponsoring the tournament in Stuttgart. And Macca, Macca, myself, and Chris Lewis all got a, picked up a Mercedes on the same day, you know, which was which was great, um, different colours and whatever, whatever, and um, you know, and yeah, that was uh, so. I ended up going from to the US and eventually to Australia. The interesting thing, when I was in the US, because it was it was on its way to Australia, um, and of course, being Australian cars with right-hand drive, um, whereas in the US, of course, it's the, you know, it's, it's the other way around. So, you know, I'd pull up at lights. You know, I'd pull up at lights and <laughs> one time I'd pull up at lights and these guys pulled up next to me and, you know, and, and they pulled the window down and said, hey, man. And I said, well, you know, what's the problem? And he goes, hey, man. They put that wheel on the wrong side of your car. You go, you go take that car back where you bought that car and you tell them they put that wheel on the wrong side. You make that, put that wheel on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) This is the U S we're talking about. Okay. So, um, and, uh, Uh, you know, so brought the car back and I thought, whoever's done this bomb, you know, this shock, you know, whoever's planted this bomb because I've, Figured that's what happened. Um, why let my car go down with with everything else? So I just mm. whipped in, just roared out. So I, I was in that that red car speeding away from the scene, and then I realised, you know, <laughs> I might get implicated here, you know. But yeah, so you know, what the heck? Um, it was a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Your legacy though with tennis is everywhere. I mean, we spoke about you know Rod Laver Arena after it was a national tennis centre around this time, but. How did it come to be that the men's final was moved to a primetime night match in, in 05, which was, I think the first one, of course, was Leighton Hewitt, Marit Safin. You would have had your fingerprints yes. all over that one as well. Yes, because 
a few years before that, um, I mean, my dream was we'd have a primetime final because the AFL, they still haven't got around to it, you know. And uh, mm. and I thought, well, you know, and no Grand Slam had had a, had a, had a men's primetime singles final. And I thought, this is where we want to be. And, and I just had a hunch it'd be amazing. And when I took the idea to Channel 7, because I'm CEO of the Australian Open, um, you know, they, they they said, Paul, you, you, you'll never live to see it. I mean, the Sunday night movies are iconic, uh, iconic in Australia. That's the way Australian families, you, it's never going to happen. So then I had to figure out, well, how can I make it happen when the network that's covering the tournament says it will never happen? It means I have to secretly, clandestinely plan this way to get the final. So I sneaked the Thursday night semi in. And they sort of raised their eyebrows. And then I said, and, and I thought if a race well, I'd always put the, the half that would have the, hopefully the best semi on the Thursday night to rate well. And then I said, look, you know, I think we really think we should have the both semis at night. So got the Friday night semi. So now we've got the two semis at night. And then we were renegotiating the deal. And so I knew there was one, I knew they didn't want a night final. Even though, And I said, I went to them and, and they you know, we were doing the deal and, and with Channel 7 and I, Bruce McWilliam was a guy and he's, he's, I think he's still there, Bruce. You know, he was a tough negotiator and um, he said, is there anything else to get this deal done? Because we just weren't quite there. And I said, well, I said, Bruce, look, I said, look, the players are saying, <laughs> and because I was a player, I can say that always, <laughs> I'm the good cover. The players are saying that, you know, with the semis being at night, you know, the, the final really should be at night. And um, it really should be at night. So um, uh, and he said, is that it? I said, yeah, that's it. He said, okay, done. That was it. Uh, it felt like an apple off a tree. And, of course, next year I think you, you, you're going to see that it's, it's possibly going to happen where the women's semis and final line, line up, potentially. Don't know. But, you know, so that was in my era in running the tournament. That was a massive moment. And of course, what happened was that year was the Centenary Australian Open. You know, 1905 to 2005, Leighton was going on his run. Alicia Mollick was playing well. And on Australia Day, Alicia played Venus Williams. And um, Leighton played uh, Nadal, a young Nadal on that day, which I scheduled on Australia Day. And in Sydney, there were 75,000 people went to the Opera House to see the live site for the Australian Open. In Sydney, they had far more people watching the Australian Open on a screen than they did watching the, their tournament there. So it just cut through all things. And we had many matches, many nights rated over a million people. We had four of the top 10 TV shows in Australia happen during that tournament. And the final between Leighton and Marat Safin, you know, averaged over 4 million viewers. And until William and Kate's wedding with the highest rating television show in the history of Australian television, it outrated Kathy Freeman winning the Sydney Olympics and winning her gold medal. That show, it outrated it. So, the first time we did it, it, and of course now it's just, well, of course, you know, it's going to be the Knights. And so that was personally for me as a goal, as an administrator, um, very fulfilling as well. Pro- probably the most fulfilling thing I did as an administrator, uh, a bit like that Macaro, you know, moment in Paris. Yeah, yeah. And so just quickly on this, if you're sitting on the AFL Commission, Paul, are you, you're barracking for a night grand final, aren't you? Yeah, look, I am. Well, yes. What happens in Sydney, though, of course, with the NRL is they have a holiday on the Monday. So you know, you know, I I would if I was the AFL, I wouldn't have had the the holiday on the Friday because 
with that that parade that none of the players want to go to. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Naomi Osaka and media conference. I mean, talk about a media thing that doesn't work for me. You know, I think that's a shocker to make the players do that. If you had a, if the holiday was the Monday celebrating the AFL Grand Final, then it can be prime time because you haven't got school and all the other things the next morning. The thing they're worried about, you know, is, is that it can't be too late. But I think it could certainly be, you know, you could you could definitely go with a you know, a seven pm Grand Final would be unbelievable. But you know, you know, you know, they, they, they I don't know. I, I I think it's inevitable. Sure, come on, it's inevitable. Yeah, it just quickly because we're running out of time. How do you reflect on that stint as that we touched on it earlier, as CEO of uh, the AFL club, the Melbourne Demons in 08? I mean, you're in the seat for around five months. There were forces outside of your control at play there. It was a volatile time for the club, wasn't it? Yeah, the thing that I'm sad about was that, you know, that Jonathan Brown was ready to come to the club. I mean, at the time, the best player in the competition. But, you know, the, the, the policy of the club was to go with young guys and recruiting that way. And I wanted to play finals. And I thought Jonathan Brown was critical. And uh, I hadn't, I hadn't heard know, that uh, one. I hadn't heard that one, Paul. Well, you know, no, that, that got a lot of play at the time because it looked like I was talking through my hat, right? And, um, and, and what happened when I got sacked on the footy show was um, they – you know, it was sort of a, a setup, which Sam Newman did very well, by the way. It was very funny the way he sent me up. Um, but the thing was, you know, they, they, they got Jonathan Brown in and they asked Jonathan Brown, they said, well, do you know anything about this, you know, m- you know Melbourne Football Club possibility, you know, because he, he wasn't getting on that well with Matthews at the time. And of course, mm. soon after that, Michael Boss became the coach at Brisbane. And, and you know, and they asked him directly, did has Paul McNamee ever spoken to you about this? And he said, no, which was true. Cause I'm not dealing directly with Jonathan Brown. I mean, I was obviously talking with his manager. So, you know, that's the way it goes. Um, so it looked like I was talking through my hat, but it was game on at that time. And look how long it's taken for Melbourne to be playing, you know, top notch football. I mean, I, you know, I, I think they should have been playing finals a decade ago, you know, a decade ago. And, and they didn't. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't fit in there, um, and that's life. And you know, and sometimes you get sacked. <laughs> that's what happens, right? <laughs> Nature of the but, beast. You know, that was the thing. That was the thing I was sad about was that I do believe he would have come to the club. Yeah, I do believe. Well, it's been great to have you on, Paul. I mean, you've got plenty keeping you busy in between your latest book. You're obviously running Paul McNamee Enterprises as well. I think you're a senior advisor for international relations for Tennis Australia. And what's the old saying? Sleep, sleep when you're dead, isn't it? Well, yeah, look, I'm not going as hard as I used to because I'm, I'm at that stage of my life. But I love the opportunity to 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 contribute to the sport. Um, it, it's it, you know, and and to have that opportunity is great. And I thank Tennis Australia for that. And uh, and you know, I'm still hopping still away and and still mm. you know doing doing some. I've got to. Yeah, I always have a few balls in the air. <laughs> yeah, Sam. Yeah. Well, I got to say, Paul McNamee, it's been uh, it hasn't just been a pleasure. It's been inspirational to talk to you today. It was a rich career on the court, and it's very much been a rich career off it. You gave yourself over to the game of tennis all those years ago, but you've also given so much to the sport and the wider sporting community. It must be said in the decades since. Well done on all you achieved and all you continue to achieve, mind you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Sam. You're looking forward to the rest of today. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Jump online. You can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. 
It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.